welcome uh, to this uh, Academy of Ideas uh, special discussion, uh, How Can We End the Cost of Living Crisis? I'm Rob Lyons, and as well as being Science and Te Technology Director at the Academy of Ideas, I'm also the convener of the Academy of Ideas Economy Forum. Well, we're all very familiar now with rising prices and rates of inflation that haven't been seen for decades. Most acutely, those price rises hit energy bills, both domestically and for petrol and diesel. But thanks to those energy price rises and wider problems, it seems like almost everything is getting considerably more expensive. And while prices have taken off, wages have been lagging behind. Indeed, government ministers berate those who want to maintain their living standards by seeking wage rises in line with inflation. For those on fixed incomes, like pensioners, and many on those on benefits, the impact of uh, the inflation and this cost of living crisis has been even worse. So tonight we're going to try to understand why everything is getting more expensive. Are we still dealing with the world economy bouncing back from COVID? How much impact are the war in Ukraine and the sanctions against Russia having? Or has this all been in the pipeline for a long time? through easy monetary policies from central banks, stagnant productivity and environmental policies. So there's a lot to figure out. Before I introduce our speakers, I just wanted to say that the Academy of Ideas um, has made it our mission to provoke thought-provoking debate with, this, with the motto, free speech allowed, and with an emphasis on making audience members, not just a panel of experts, central to our style of discussion. If you would like to chip in with the price of a pint, uh, then please do so. Uh, my colleague Ella hopefully will be putting the link in the chat, but it's academyofideas.org.uk forward slash support. Um, right, okay, on to our speakers. Um, and they'll be speaking for seven, ten minutes each, um, introducing different aspects of, um, of the, what's going on at the moment. Uh, and in the order they're speaking, first up is Robert Fig. He's principal at the Metals Risk Team, uh, a commodity risk management consultancy, having previously worked at ArcelorMittal and the London Metals Exchange. Uh, then it's uh, Hilary Salt. She's an actuary and founder of First Actuarial and has uh, uh, worked a great deal with trade unions and ha will have a, a different uh, perspective on things as well. And finally, Phil Mullen, who's a writer, lecturer and business manager and author of Beyond Confrontation, Globalists, Nationalists, and Their Discontents. So um, without any further ado, I'm going to hopefully spotlight, um, no, that's the wrong one, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> oh dear, it's been a while since I've done this. <laughs> there we go, there's Robert, right. Um, okay, over to you, Robert. Thanks very much, Rob. Um, I really want to situate um, and, and sort of set the scene about commodity, commodities uh, since the crash of 2008. I want to use that as my starting point, although um, uh, these kind of changes that we've seen have been going on, on for a lot longer than that. Um, volatility in commodity prices, rising and falling, as we've seen, is not uh, an issue that is peculiar to one country. It is a global phenomenon at the moment. It predates uh, Ukraine, it predates COVID and uh, the, the uh, green agenda or the fossil fuel issue. Certainly the crash of 2008 
led to a significant fall in investment in commodities. Initially, it was in response to uh, falling demand, but exacerbated uh, latterly by uh, country risk and the rise of resource nationalism, putting a break on investment in many African and Latin American countries, most notably Peru, Chile, Bolivia, in Africa, South Africa, Zambia, DRC, and others, um, where uh, investment really dried up from the major mining companies. Building a new mine um, is a long-term prospect uh, with lots of risks attached to it. Uh, normally, it takes about 10 years to develop a mine uh, from inception to production, and there's a significant period following that of payback. So mining companies have been rather loath to invest in economies where uh, their um, investments are unstable and the returns are not guaranteed. What uh, many of the big mining companies did was to try and drive down the cost of production, um, but uh, which they have been pretty successful at. But they've also deployed unused cash that they have in highly unproductive ways. Oh, bless uh, you. To, well, uh, no, I'm not. Sorry. To fund um, uh, high dividend payments and buybacking of shares rather than um, investing in new productive uh, fields. Uh, for example, Rio Tinto's uh, latest dividend yield was 12% of your investment. And that is echoed across the entire um, uh, commodities world. Very little new investment has occurred in difficult jurisdictions. In fact, they've been selling them off and that has uh, continued to add to what we call supply-side shortages, the shortages of metal and, and other commodities. Western Europe, as we're all aware, have been very heavily reliant on Russia for supplies of fossil fuel materials, such as oil, gas, um, and concomitantly electricity, but also on mining and agricultural products copper, um, uh, nickel, two key metals in the battery industry, and uh, agricultural commodities, most notably wheat. Um, the world economy also relies very heavily on China as an offtake of raw materials. And that too has been hit by not only the world economy, but the recent shutdown over the zero COVID policy. So first, COVID led to a shortage of labor, low productivity, and the lack of uh, free movement in commodities. Um, then with COP26 and the fossil fuel hysteria and the rise in prices of battery metals led to um, incredibly high volatility. We saw, we have seen commodity prices literally quadruple overnight. Uh, so much so that the nickel market was shut down by the London Metal Exchange uh, when um, uh, uh, recently it went from about $23,000 per tonne to $101,000 overnight. Um, 
And that kind of volatility is being echoed elsewhere. We, we saw the Australian electricity market shut last week. We've seen um, uh, the price of electricity in, Nor in the Nordic countries go from $13 per megawatt hour to well over 200 dollars uh, euros uh, pretty much overnight so we've seen huge uh, volatility in these markets to illustrate really that this is a global phenomenon uh, one need look no further i think than the shipping markets where the price of chartering a ship has skyrocketed and huge queues have developed outside many of the major Chinese ports such as Qingdao, Dalian, Shanghai, along with uh, other ports like Singapore, Long Beach, California, New Orleans, Rotterdam, and Dubai, where literally thousands of ships um, are waiting in what are called the roads outside the harbor to be let in to offload. And this clogging uh, of fully laden ships um, has um, has slowed the uh, global supply chain. Uh, we've seen incidents like uh, the grounding of the ship in the Suez Canal and a similar grounding of a ship in the Panama Canal, literally bringing the global supply chain to its knees or uh, very nearly so. One of the elements of this is that just-in-time procurement, where companies just buy what they need, uh, is no longer assured, and they are buying stocks to hold on to them, uh, particularly difficult in the current climate. Um, all of these shortages are highly disruptive to the world economy, and we are seeing no end to uh, the rise in prices. Um, ironically, one of the uh, commodities that has skyrocketed in the last few weeks has been the coal market, the thermal coal market, uh, largely because there's no question about it that many countries are going to fire up their, um, their fleet of coal-fired power stations um, because they have no alternative. And we saw two days ago Germany uh, buying in huge quantities of coal to, uh, to fire up their power stations. So these shortages are, are highly disruptive. Uh, volatility in these markets is very dangerous because if it's, if it's left unmanaged, um, then you, you, uh, people in the automotive industry, the aerospace industry, manufacturing industry, lose their profit margins. So, um, there's no question about it. Every aspect of the commodity markets uh, are having a, a major impact on our living standards. Thanks. Great, thank you very much indeed, Rob. Um, <laughs> right, um, <clears throat> I shall relieve you of the spotlight and bring in Hilary. So great start there from Rob. Uh, Hilary, your take on things. Thanks, Rob. So um, there is, I think, no doubt at all that incomes are not keeping up with, with prices. And in some respects, that is a, a timing issue. So, for example, increases on uh, public service benefits and pay and pensions uh, often linked to previous September's RPI 
sorry, CPI. Uh, last September, CPI looks pretty puny when you compare it to current uh, levels of inflation. Um, April um, figures, so uh, CPI 9%, CPI 8, which government says is its preferred measure, 7.8%. Uh, RPI, 13.1%. Um, and uh, pension and, and benefit increases 3.1%. The other um, figure that's really interesting here is, is average weekly earnings, uh, AWE, uh, somewhere between 4 and 7%. Um, lots of bonus effects coming in, as I think some employers try to resolve some of their um, staffing issues through bonuses rather than um, uh, ongoing pay increases. So some of this, this is, is quite tricky to, to measure. But some people might have, have noted that the, the other index that has been uh, receiving quite a lot of um, uh, airtime recently is the producer input prices. Uh, they've just risen by 22.1%. So, you know, that's a lot more inflation still in the pipeline for some of the, um, the reasons that, that Robert's just been explaining. That's a, an all-time record increase driven by transport metal uh, chemicals prices. So there's no real sign of inflation stopping. I thought it is worth just mentioning a couple of issues around measurement. So, as I say, CPI has become the headline uh, rate that government measure. Um, RPI, which I think many of us still think is, a, is, is in some ways a better measure, uh, still exists now, but government is um, phasing it out by 2030, although it has been taken to uh, judicial re review on that. Um, and and uh, AWE um, is is really problematic because people may know that AWE is not measured by actual gathering of lots of data. It's used um, it, it's it's put together using a sampling uh, methodology, so taking samples from uh, uh, employers. Now, that's been quite difficult over the period since the pandemic, as people have moved in and out of the labour force uh, into uh, furlough and out of furlough. Um, so, really big shifts in the in the um, labour, um, uh, the, whole, the whole of the labour market, which means that measuring um, uh, increases overall has been quite difficult because you're not measuring the same thing from, from month to month. On the topic of indices, we've really seen the re-emergence of claims recently about the wage price spiral. So this is a theory that says that as prices rise, workers negotiate higher pay, that increases employer costs. They pass those uh, increases on in their uh, prices and the spiral takes hold. People might, might remember that Andrew Bailey, Governor of the Bank of England, uh, warned that uh, workers shouldn't be asking for big pay rises because that would fuel inflation. In fact, the empirical evidence for, for a wage price spiral has always been quite weak. Um, perhaps most hot off the press, there's been research recently commissioned by United the Union that indicated that the profits and profit margins of UK companies have risen significantly uh, post-pandemic, uh, while workers' earnings have fallen uh, in real terms, and that means after allowing for, for inflation. Um, they, they point to incidences of uh, what's called profit gouging, which is where companies use the supply side problems to artificially inflate their prices by more than the uh, rise in their inputs. Um, and I think there's, there, there's that and that there's, there's quite a lot of opportunistic repricing going on in markets. Some analysis from BlackRock indicates that, that actually if you compare the uh, labour costs per unit uh, of output, uh, those labour costs are actually lower now than, than pre-pandemic. So there's, 
there's some fat in there, you know, to actually support pay rises. But of course, more widely, uh, in reality, if employers responded to price increases by um, uh, introducing innovations, introducing productivity um, efficiencies, uh, that would, of course, fund uh, uh, wage rises. Uh, I know Phil's going to talk a bit more about productivity uh, later, so I'll leave that uh, there. The other thing that we've seen quite a lot of talk about is the idea of a, a return to the 1970s. Uh, and I thought it was worthwhile just commenting on, on what's very different now to the 1970s. So in the 1970s, half of the workforce were, were in trade unions. Now it's around about a quarter, uh, but many of those are in the public service unions. So rather than private sector uh, employers. In fact, only around 13.7% of private sector employees are covered by CBAs, by collective bargaining agreements. Uh, and of course, not all of those uh, will be union members. There's also quite a shift in the labour force. 14% of, of workers are now self-employed uh, and on average, uh, less than uh, employees do. And while we have seen wage inflation recently, it's been highest in the areas where people are perhaps already paid uh, higher wages, so particularly in professional services and financial services. So what's government doing? So government seems to be pinning its hopes on the idea of um, Bank of England using its levers to control inflation, uh, in particular by raising interest rates. Uh, but my view is that, that, you know, that's a very weak instrument to use against inflation that's driven mainly by supply side problems. It's also worth noting that in the 1970s, interest rate rises had a really, really immediate impact on people uh, with mortgages because most people in those days had uh, um, floating rate uh, mortgages. Now around 74% of people are on fixed rate mortgages, 96% of recent borrowers chose fixed rates. So it's a blunter instrument to control um, uh, demand through, through consumers. But rising interest rates will make it much harder for, for companies to rearrange credit or bank borrowing. Uh, and it could the, the rising interest rates could well drive some many very indebted employers into insolvency. But government has, has been kind of, you know, focusing on interest rates. And it's been very quiet about the other thing that I think has been a big driver of inflation. That's quantitative easing. Uh, this, these are the levers that the Bank of England used to flood the economy. Uh, via the banks with cash, uh, and that supported cheap and, and easy credit. The scale of quantitative easing has been really staggering. So this first happened in 2009 in the wake of the 2008 banking crisis, about 250 billion uh, spent then on quantitative easing. We've had other waves of, of QE in 2012, 2014 to 16, 2016 to 20, and it's ratcheted up each time, so 300 billion, 350 billion, 450 billion. Following the, the pandemic in 2020, 900 billion uh, is what was spent on, on QE. Now, I'm not a kind of ardent monetarist, but I think it's important to note that that massive, massive of cash washing through the economy uh, has not particularly been used productively. It's been used to inflate the value of shares. It's been used to fund some of the things that Robert was talking about, like, you know, uh, cheap borrowing and uh, companies uh, doing things like share buybacks. Now, the Bank of England has started unwinding QE through uh, quantity, quantitative tightening, QT, uh, but it's doing that very, very, very slowly. It's not actually bought 
uh, so it's not actually sold any uh, of its stock, but it is not uh, renewing bonds as they as they mature. Lots of other um, uh, levers government could be pulling that perhaps it isn't. Uh, things like green le levies on energy, VAT, uh, it, the uh, indirect um, uh, effect it could have on transport and utilities costs, the direct effect it could have on things like interest on student loans uh, and, and tax and, and uh, NI policy. Um, we, we know that government has taken some action on things like benefits, so there's the cost of living payment, the rising universal support, the discount on energy bills that's no longer a, 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 a loan. Uh, but it does seem that, you know, there, there are bigger, uh, perhaps more aspirational things that government could do that perhaps would have more uh, longer term impacts. And, and I think that's where we perhaps need to be holding government to account and where perhaps we, we could uh, discuss more uh, in the discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much, Hilary. Again, very useful uh, <coughs> survey of uh, some important issues. Uh, right now. Uh, and finally, Phil. <coughs> Great. The floor um, is yours. Thank you very much, Rob. And uh, good evening, all. Um, now, following on from those uh, excellent points made by Robert and Hillary, I'm going to focus on three questions. First, why have the recent shocks of the pandemic lockdowns and the war in Ukraine had such a damaging impact for so many families in Britain? Second, where does prime domestic responsibility lie? And third, what could be done here to address these sharply rising prices? I think answering the first question of why things are so bad for people is foundational to everything else because misdiagnosis not only prolongs people's financial plight, but could well worsen it into the future. And unfortunately, too much of today's discussion from economists, from journalists, politicians, I think is misdiagnosing what's happening. In particular, it suffers from an overdose of presentism, by which commentators tend to privilege the observed present over the experience of the past. And that's a problem because what has gone before is crucial to understanding today's economic challenges and therefore for being able to come up with meaningful solutions. Specifically, while the supply shocks of the past two years have been substantial and still, I think, have some way to run, as, as Robert has alluded to, the crucial truth exposed by the grave impact of these shocks it's not about the present, but is about the pre-existing depth of economic malaise. And today's hardships will be another missed opportunity if we don't also address the revealed fragility of economic growth that prevailed long before the recent price hikes. And in this regard, I think both the Prime Minister and the Chancellor's reiterations that Britain's, quote, economic fundamentals remain strong are, uh, to put it politely, at the extreme end of delusional uh, presentism. Now, taking Hillary's example, focusing, uh, if we were to only focus on today's price rises or to raise fears about uh, an illusory wage price inflationary spiral, that would divert, I think, from the essential reason why so many people have been pushed over the edge, which is that they don't have sufficient income nor the cushion from previous income that could have helped tied them over through these price shocks. And this isn't just because, as, uh, as Hillary has, has described, because real incomes, both wages and benefits have been falling in recent months. 
It's because average real wages have been flatlining for around 15 years and indeed are still below where they were before the financial crisis. As a result, many households entered this explosion of price surges with inadequate incomes and with minimal, if any, savings and already in debt. In short, most people have insufficient slack or reserve to mitigate today's financial shocks. So the primary answer for why things are so bad for people is to see it, I think, as the cumulative result of decades of slowing personal income growth, going back half a century, in fact, to those famous 1970s, uh, and to the start of an evolving long depression. Because the 70s was when wage growth began its gradual descent to zero over the last 15 years, driven primarily by the accompanying secular declines in business investment, in technology and innovation, and the resulting slump in productivity growth that productivity being the amount workers were able to produce in the same time. As Robert described, even if high inflation subsides, we're likely to be left with the burden of elevated energy and some other commodity prices for some time. So the durable solution to a prolonged squeeze in living standards is to revive business investment and flourishing productivity. These are the only means for creating enough well-paying jobs for people and enabling sustained wage growth. In short, we need to restructure the economy so that it can give us real wage increases, not the wage cuts that policymakers are today trying to enforce. This takes us to the second question of where does prime responsibility rest at home? Again, I think the presentist commentary is deluding in the way that it has targeted blame on recent policy actions of the central banks here as well in the US and Europe. The common criticism is that central bankers were complacent last year about the return of inflation and were, as the term is used, behind the curve in raising interest rates, thereby allowing inflation to become entrenched. I think this narrative is flawed for a whole number of reasons, not least because the presentist focus distracts from the much more damaging longer-term consequences of easier monetary policies that go back to the late 1980s. Uh, uh, consequences which Hillary uh, 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 pointed out and, uh, uh, and described. Because the 1980s, the late 80s, was when Western central banks, with the backings of their governments, began to introduce ever looser monetary conditions, which facilitated an easier resort to debt. And it's this state-led financialization and borrowing which helped paper over and evade those long-running productivity declines by enabling companies, individuals and governments, in effect, to spend more than was being produced and in the process generating the onerous debts, financial bubbles and other instabilities of today. A more pressing political reason that scapegoating central bankers is misplaced is that, very conveniently for politicians, it takes the responsibility away from Western governments for having aggravated the productive slump and for its own long-running policy failures. Now, we all know about the devastating deindustrialization from the late uh, 1970s and into the 80s, but much more importantly for levels of prosperity today, we have had far too little reindustrialization in the subsequent decades in order to create replacement, higher productivity businesses, sectors, and jobs. Now that reindustrialization is a duty for governments to lead on, not for central banks, who, as Hillary said, can manipulate financial prices, but have next to no capacity to affect growth and productivity outcomes. 
And yet, since the late 1980s, successive governments have been hiding behind the fatalist and self-fulfilling claim that there is little that they could do economically in the face of global and natural forces. And instead, they delegated, they delegated the technocratic management of the economy to their supposedly expert, independent, and unaccountable central banks. Now, this brings me to my third question. If the politicians have been failing their economic responsibilities, what could be, they be doing differently now? Now, I think given the extent of the hardship people are facing, the government needs to be, and this might be a, a, a utopian wish, but it needs to be able to do two things at the same time. It speedily uh, has to help the people most in financial distress, while simultaneously, not later, but simultaneously launching a nationwide public deliberation about a productivity growth plan to boost people's future incomes. For the immediate task, as well as, I think, renouncing very firmly their backing for wage cuts, the, the cabinet should end this financial purgatory of lower income people waiting for more handouts and straight away implement something like the proposals from the Resolution Foundation think tank for, and uh, Hillary was uh, uh, alluding to this as well, for upgrading this year's benefit payments in line with current inflation rates, not the outdated 3% inflation rate from last September. And in addition, I think they should restore that extra 1,000 pounds annual lump sum on universal credit that was introduced during the lockdowns, but was withdrawn last October. Now, such unemployment and welfare benefit increases should be permanent, not temporary emergency measures, because we need them also in order to pursue the longer term productivity plan, which, given the scale of sclerosis that is being exposed, is bound to be extremely disruptive to many of us during the gradual transition to the creation of better jobs. I think a core principle of this productivity program is to change existing policies so that they no longer block, but instead enable the creative destruction process. And this policy review should cover all areas, industrial, regulatory, energy production, transport, housing, as well as traditional fiscal and monetary policies. A return to creative destruction requires governments stopping the corporate welfare mollycoddling practices, not least uh, those sustained negative real interest rates, because far from encouraging business investment, they've been propping up unproductive firms and thereby discouraging investment by the stronger ones. The plan also needs spending more public funds to promote innovation and invention, to back the development of new industrial and service sectors, deploying better technologies, including energy policies uh, that can bring about cheap and reliable energy, as well as a house building program that supports cheaper accommodation and easier worker mobility. So in summary, governments should be pushed through the circumstance of this crisis to stop opposing wage increases and instead provide a triple package of measures that respond both to today's income squeeze as well as the need for wider economic restructuring. First, more generous financial support for people who can't get good jobs. Second, removing state-created barriers to business investment and innovation. And third, directing government intervention to be pursued through direct government intervention to be pursued through local, 
people-led transformation plans that support house building, new businesses, new industries, new sectors, including that cheaper, reliable energy network. If this doesn't happen, this crisis would unfortunately be another missed opportunity, and today's crunch in living standards will extend and worsen into the future. Thank you. Great, thanks. <clears throat> Thank you very much, Phil. Um, right, um, so there's been a lot covered in those three presentations. Um, uh, they're all excellent and all uh, you know, covering different ground as well. So um, I'd be very keen to get your thoughts, questions, comments now as well. If your questions are more basic than perhaps has been covered in the uh, presentations, please do free, feel free to, to ask quite basic questions or make uh, more, more straightforward comments because other people will be thinking much the same as well. So it would be great to have um, th those comments as well. Um, but also, please air disagreements as well. Um, so we've got Thomas McEwen. Um, so, Thomas. Um, it's Simon. Um, oh, hiya. Hiya. Um, thanks. That, they, they were three brilliant um, introductions. Um, so I've just got a, a, a basic question for Phil, really. Um, and, I, and I agree, but I just would like to know your answer. Um, you say that more public funds for um, welfare, increased welfare, uh, restoring the £1,000 a year's benefit, etc. And then more public funds on housing, R&D. And that's a simple question. Where would the, where would government get the money from? Would it borrow or increase taxes? Okay, is that it? Or is there, yeah. sorry, uh, that's, that was that's it. it. Yeah. That's great, thank you very much. Yes, that is um, a perennial discussion, and particularly when we've been talking about the Bank of England uh, providing lots of extra, um, oh, sorry, I'm gonna spotlight myself again. Uh, lots of extra, uh, money through quantitative easing, um, where is this extra cash coming, going to come from? Um, Kerry Dingle. Unmute. Hello, am I, am I there? I think so. Um, very basic question. Thank you to Robert, Hillary and Phil. That was really, really helpful. The main thing that I get thrown at me all the time, like everybody, it avoids any... Uh, responsibility being taken by Western governments whatsoever, which seems to be really key. But I also wonder if you could give us your insight. I know it's been mentioned, but to what effect did the shutdown, you know, lockdown and, you know, the prolonged variety in China, etc., um, you know, even worse than what we had, um, and the war in Ukraine, because those, the lockdown and shutdown is entirely missed out of everybody's um, assessment because that involves government taking responsibility. Everybody points to the war in Ukraine as being entirely responsible, which is one of Phil's key misdiagnosis. And everybody now, not everybody, but a huge number of people seem to blame workers wanting higher wages as hugely problematic the wage price spiral um the wage price spiral seems to be the easiest one to just knock on the head and for a lot of people obviously that's like well you know screw you and they tend to just point to the hypocrisy of everybody um to justify it but i do wonder what the real impact of 
um, the war in Ukraine is, and and also what your assessment of the shutdown is. You know, how, I know your what you've talked about, Phil, in terms of it being you know pre-COVID um, and sort of long-standing economic stagnation, but you know, shouldn't we point a finger at governments for massive economic mismanagement as well as ending our political liberties? Okay, great, thank you. Um, any more for any more from the floor? Um, but, um, oh, sorry. Is there any... Yeah, so Ian's uh, asking about, is there any appetite amongst ordinary popula local populations for transformation plans? And shouldn't we be looking at these things nationally rather than locally? Good question. Uh, Jenny Cunningham. Um, hi, am I unmuted? You are. Good. Um, again, quite a basic um, sort of question. Looking again at the whole productivity discussion, well, there doesn't seem to be a discussion about productivity that I can pick up. And this seems to be a complete avoidance of, you know, what is required, in fact, now, because it's obviously uh, integrally related to, um, you know, propping up um, basically moribund um, industries and businesses um, but there doesn't seem to be any any discussion other than people occasionally fling out a bit of R&D um, but I'm just wondering whether any serious economists are coming forward with any kind of strategy in terms of actually um, improving productivity other than you know attacking workers working conditions Thanks. Thanks. Um, Mark. Hello. Sorry about that. Okay. Very much. Um, yeah, it follows on from the question on appetites for, um, for growth. Um, both uh, house building came up in uh, um, a couple of the introductions. And um, uh, I think James Hartfield's written an interesting article on Spike today. But uh, um, is is the app when government policy is about net zero and sustainability, sustainable development, and and the planners have restrictions um, that are going unchallenged because no one's making a case for growth in the construction industry, as far as I can see. I don't think it's really in the interest of. Uh, um, developers or house builders because uh, they want to build minimum houses so that they keep the the values high but yeah, it's that um in the construction industry i don't see any real appetite for for growth there's um lots of people interested in uh, um uh nice nice new buildings and stadiums there's another um uh um theater in in manchester being built but uh not not any great appetite for growth um, big time with big housing build, building programs. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Para. Oh, sorry, Does that work? Yes, you're on. Does it work? 
Yes, yeah. it has. Um, okay, um, I've got a question and a quick comment. I'll start with the question. I mean, Kerry talked about the lockdown and uh, the war in Ukraine. Something else I've begun to pick up uh, in some of the articles that I read is that uh, some commentators, uh, certainly even economists, uh, seem to bring Brexit into the discussion. And I think it would be useful to see what the panel thinks, uh, you know, uh, could it be Brexit as being the reason why we are where we are today? So that's the question. A very quick comment on, and Hillary uh, mentioned this briefly about the uh, disputes that we're having uh, and the whole question of uh, going back to the 70s. Uh, I mean, I think one thing, uh, certainly, um, you know, there are definitely labor disputes, uh, certainly in the last six months. Um, um, they've been totted around the country. Uh, apparently, 10 organizations in Scotland have got. Uh, people in dispute. Uh, in London, there's 22. Southwest, there's 14 organizations. So you could actually say there's plenty of discontent. And I would think that as inflation rises and wages do not keep up, which they're not at the moment, uh, more people will strike. But I think to think that potentially, I mean, there's been articles about whether or not uh, we're now uh, workers are a lot stronger, uh, is there class, could we go back to the 70s? I think it's a little bit far-fetched because I think what did happen in the 70s and the 80s was that, you know, class, the working class, its organizations were smashed. And what today, and COVID definitely has exacerbated this, is there's much more atomization and individuation. Uh, Hillary again mentioned that, you know, when you look at the workforce covered by collective bargaining, today it is very, very low. I mean, it was about 80% of the workforce in the past. And now, uh, I mean, my figure was nearer 20. Hillary said 13%, so it's even worse. We have a very weak workforce. And I personally find it difficult to see how, uh, you know, lots of uh, disputes, but how could it be nationally organized and powerful will come into fruition? Just can't see it. And certainly in the past, in the 70s, the question was who rules, workers or government uh, or unions or government? I don't think we could ask that. That definitely is not on the agenda. Okay, thank, thank you. Uh, so I'm gonna take how I'm sorry, yeah. that's right. <laughs> and then Alan okay. Miller, and then I'm going to bring the, the the panel back in reverse order, just because there's so much on the table already uh, that um, it's going to be tricky for uh, the panel to respond uh, just with what we've already started to talk about. So, um, how are this? <laughs> then Alan, it's Marilyn actually. <laughs> right. uh, what, what I was going to say is because obviously going back to the strike thing and. Uh, I do think it's interesting that we do seem to be getting a lot of adverts for unions. So obviously, I think there is so much dissatisfaction out there. And and we say about the spiral of, of, of increasing wages. But I did hear mooted yesterday that why don't the people, the companies who have big profits or just profits anyway, just give their workers a rise? And and then they don't have to pass on the the, the rise of the products to the people. 
if, if you see what I'm saying? So that, you know, everybody wins then. And even if you're not in a, a company that is a big company and you haven't got the, the same power as, as, as um, the bigger companies, then they won't have the price passed down onto them either. So isn't it a win-win-win situation that... The, the, even if it's only a short-term thing that they don't, that, that they give the profits more to the as a pay rise, even if it's only short-term, but just to, it, it just seems immoral to me for all these companies still to be making big money when there's people down there that, you know, can't eat or, or have to choose between eat or eating. Just a thought. Okay, thank you. Right, Alan. Thanks. Great introductions. Thank you. It strikes me that one of the problems is that, as well as the presentism that you describe, Phil, that there's um, either people say that people should get some more wages or they say they're being irresponsible for the wages and we should just have cuts, maybe in green taxes or duties. Um, or there's a critique of the public sector uh, and then there's sort of ambivalence about the wages. It's more about the political agenda of the public sector. Look at all the private people that have lost their jobs in the private sector and their businesses. Uh, that alongside a really lack of ambition because your proposals, um, and I know you said they might not, they might be somewhat optimistic and maybe not as realistic, but really what, what you're putting forward, and I agree with you, but what you're putting forward is a rethinking entirely and an entirely new orientation towards dynamism, uh, transformative investment, innovation, and courage at, at a juncture, which this would be a perfect opportunity in some ways to do it, obviously in the middle of a, a crisis deepening, but at the very moment where our appetite for risk uh, and uh, courage has been really diminished. And I suppose you can assert something at the level of ideas and, and try and inspire people around it and say, look, rather than saying just have cuts or just, you know, having wage, but, you know, there's an argument for a bit more all round sort of solidarity that we're all in this together, we can work things out, but we need to have both the state and business and workers all having solutions together. But that thing where we say, have, have, you know, take risks and be bold. I think it obviously <laughs> any idea you'd need to go out and promote it and try and champion it. But how realistic do you and everyone else think that really is i mean i'm all for it but my you know my conversations with people have been very frustrating because it's it's kind of very piecemeal and even and when you try and assert the idea that um we can have an all-round solution and that just you know we should support people wanting wages even if there's issues with the way the public sector has done things but that isn't the solution in and of itself we need to transform things People just think it's all too daunting and all too much. And where where the public is within all of this and, and making that making that demand to elected representatives and others. Great. Thank you very much indeed. So I'll I'll bring the panel back in reverse order. So Phil, then Hillary, then um, Rob. Uh, but obviously feel free to go beyond whatever your initial comments were and take up anything that's come up from uh, the audience. So Phil. <clears throat> Thanks. Um, Alan, my point about um, might be a bit utopian was supposed to be a joke, really. Um, I was making the point that governments can't even do one thing, but I'm asking them to do two things at the same time. But um, I think it's quite realistic to expect us as people to be able to do two things at the same time, to both be fighting for wage increases and dealing with the problems of the present, 
but also uh, to begin to discuss what the longer term solution is. So I don't see these as, as in any way uh, counterposed. And in fact, I think they sort of uh, reinforce each other. Um, I think, you know, what's going on at the moment with the rails strikes and uh, other potential strikes in, in, in uh, workplaces across the country, I think are, are very positive developments because it shows people are prepared to take uh, matters into their own hands. But in the course of that, um, we know that those things will be quite limited in and of themselves if they're restricted just to, you know, trying to get a pay increase, which is a bit closer to inflation or on, or, or at the same level. Um, so I think we and others have responsibility to try to what you could say is uh, is establish a political discourse around that as to uh, what the uh, the bigger picture is, and that's what I was. Um, uh, it, trying to do and saying that one of the most important things when I was saying, you know, for example, you know, uh, it, it's wrong to scapegoat the central bankers is I think one of the things that comes out of this in terms of the discussion should be to uh, not let the government, the our political representatives evade responsibility. You know, people are knocking the government for all sorts of things at the moment. But as uh, uh, as Jenny said, there isn't much of a public discussion about a productivity plan, whereas, you know, that's really at the source of a lot of the uh, economic, a lot of the economic problems. So using today's discussion in ways which do not allow the government to pass off responsibility is I think very important. So that leads me just to, to, to take up just one other question, which is Kerry's question about, you know, how much responsibility applies to the lockdowns, how much uh, uh, responsibility, economic responsibility applies to the war and so on in, in Ukraine. And I think it's very important at the moment, while, uh, you know, in a sense, being able to separate out, you know, the, 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 the economic reasons for things, um, from those broader questions of what stance do we take on the lockdowns or what stance take in the war. And that's not just because it's important, I think, to be fighting openly for you know, freedom and, and democratic rights and sovereignty, which are the issues which are highlighted by first the lockdowns in terms of illiberalism and in terms of the war in Ukraine, the, the fight for national sovereignty, but also because if these sort of external events are being are allowed to be used, which this government is using, it's not the case to say that no one is talking about the impact of the uh, of the pandemic and the lockdowns. Read what governments are saying, what economists are saying, saying, oh, the problems we have are these supply chain disruptions. Or if you look at the war, as uh, as I think Boris said yesterday, you know, this war will cause inflation, cause all sorts of difficulties and things that's worthwhile. But that means that the, politi the, the political discussion about the economy gets passed off onto these endogenous sort of uh, shocks from outside. And that avoids where the responsibility should be, which is this government has avoided having that discussion about productivity for years and years and years. This is not something which, you know, uh, has just arisen uh, in the last couple of years. But what I think this particular circumstance of today, the specificity of today is that, and, and it's expressed in people fighting for um, a higher wages, is that people are, in a sense, open or, or there's a possibility of us taking the opportunity to uh, situate today in what went before in terms of the failures of the policy in the past. And for as long as politicians are able to 
evade the responsibility, whether it's to central bankers or whether it's to say it's all down to the pandemic and the supply chain disruptions and, and uh, problems of dislocation, or it's all down to uh, you know, a war which we, have to, which we have to support. It's all passing responsibility away, whereas the debate we need is a debate which is about domestic uh, uh, possibilities. Um, uh, and that is what uh, I think is most important to draw out of all this. Hillary. Yeah, so to pick up on, on some of the questions that, that Ian and, and Mark and Alan were asking, I think one of the things it's quite important to do is to raise people's aspirations. You know, so rather than talking about, you know, let's build some new houses, what, why we're we not talking about let's build some new towns, you know, perhaps centred around new technologies, you know, let's build a new biotechnology town and, and you know, uh, bring the uh, universities into uh, uh, helping with that and, and you know, that, that kind of a... A, a public-private partnership to, to build those kind of things, not in a kind of um, profit-seeking way, but almost in a kind of, a, you know, an innovation-seeking way. And actually, I think, on, you know, Simon's question, where does the money come from? There's, there's, there is cash swilling about that needs investment. So for that kind of long-term investment, you know, if you think about all those people who are millions of people now auto-enrolled into um, uh, uh into pensions you know there's a massive stack of money there that the insurers are holding and they're looking for long-term infrastructure type projects to invest it in so i don't think money uh you know the the investment uh money to to do that is is lacking it, it it's there and, and available but what is lacking is the is the innovation and the aspiration as alan said that the courage uh and, and risk aversion is 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 a, the things that we've got to really tackle i'm not quite sure how uh, so um uh, perhaps more discussion on that um kerry's question about how much is it the pandemic i do still think that we've got to have a real discussion a bit of a grown-up discussion about this um great resignation because and, and, and you know people's ideas that they're going to carry on working from home forever because i think some of those things are quite high in the sky um and you know one of the things i think we're going to see as the cost of living crisis bites is that some people will re examine that that there is a massive workforce shortage and it's not just brexit on, on paris question you know it, it is that people are have have kind of phased out of the workforce um and and re-engaging those people uh will be an important part of the work we do i think over the next uh, few years um going on to kind of jenny and para and marilyn's questions about productivity and, and and unions and and um and strikes i think i mean power's right that the unions were smashed and and you know from, from one level from the point of view of, of capital that that's really um a, a good thing in terms of, of of employers but you know it does mean that all the things that workers did that you know in their collective organizations of unions has been lost so if you do remember the 70s, you know, when there were strikes, the, the discussions were along the, the, the lines of we want a 14% pay rise and management would say, well, what productivity gains can you help us with? And, you know, unions are a key driver of improving those productivity levels and, and all that's been lost. And actually, I think we all know that it's workers on the ground are probably best at finding the, the real problems with the way work works at the moment and, and, and addressing those problems. But that ability for management and workers to talk and work together to improve those things has been lost by the, the unions being smashed. Um, and actually, I think there are some, some nice green shoots coming through now that perhaps indicate that some of those, um, the ways in which, you know, people could work together to drive society forward 
uh, are being rebuilt. I don't want to get too too romantic about that. You know, there's still that big tension between the owners of capital uh, and, and workers, and that's not resolved by people working together to address some of those things. So, so on Marilyn's point, you know, that you know, going back to a kind of a Marxist analysis of society. There are the owners of capital and the and the workers, and the owners of capital don't give money away. Um, workers have to fight for that, uh, and and we have to try to reinvent ways uh, to do that because you know they won't just do it because uh, of the need for for um, work uh, workers to have a kind of sympathy vote. Um, there was one other thing. Um, Oh, yes, uh, so um, people might have seen the doctors today. Doctors are asking for a 30% pay rise, uh, uh, being nice and started, nice and low uh, in their um, uh, aspirations there. Um, and, and I do think public service uh, discontent might look a bit more 70s-like, uh, if I'm honest, um, because I think, you know, some of those structures uh, still exist there. Uh, and I think, you know, when we've been talking about strikes so far, I think we have been talking largely uh, about it in, in the in the private sector. And I think public sectors are, are, is quite different. Uh, and we will we will see quite a lot of discontent in that area. Brilliant. And uh, Robert. Uh, just a quick comment um, following um, the question about Brexit that was raised by Para. Um, <clears throat> You know, there is a, a fad at the moment, uh, particularly amongst ex-Tory grandees like Michael Heseltine, Rory Stewart, and more recently Sadiq Khan throwing in their uh, five pence worth on blaming it all on Brexit. Um, I'm not arguing for a moment that there aren't serious issues in not only the, the British economy um, as raised by both Hillary and, and Phil, but I think one does have to situate a lot of this as a global um, issue. Um, you know, if you go to look at the labor market in Germany at the moment, there is a huge uh, pool of, um, of a shortage of, of labor. Um, there's a shortage of labor in Italy, in Spain, in France, um, and in uh, uh, the United States. So it's not a, a Brexit issue. It's it's a uh, fundamental issue about uh, the world economy at the moment and the impact that these commodity prices have had on that, but also the lack of policy responses that we're seeing from all of those governments as to what they should be doing. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, that's. I think that might be worth pursuing. I mean, what? Why isn't um, these labour shortages converting into productivity gains. Um, uh, that that's uh, obviously could be a bit of a long-term issue. Um, so thank you for your patience, those of you who've been waiting to speak. Uh, next up is Daniel Benamy. Yeah, uh, thanks, Rob. Uh, two quick things. First of all, it seems to me the big political challenge, and I don't have an answer to this myself, is to develop a framework to kind of repose uh, this question to say it may seem like a cost of living crisis and in many ways it is but there's something more fundamental going on so in other words to link what Hillary and Rob said where you know they very clearly explain how people's uh, cost of living is being squeezed to what Phil said who explained that it is 
fundamentally about productivity and about economic growth and about other things because it seems to me the idea of a cost of living crisis has real purchase on people because people's uh, real wages and real living standards are falling. It's not kind of myth, it's not made up. But to explain that fundamentally there are other forces at work, it's not a one-off shock, as Phil was saying, it's not the result of a one-off shock like the war in the Ukraine or the, the pandemic, but it is part of a longer term crisis, is very, very difficult. Uh, not impossible, but to some, and so we can develop a political program about what should be done. And I think that's completely legitimate to do that. But I think we need to think more about how to reframe it and repose it in a different way to try to explain to people what the underlying forces are. I mean, I know, for example, that Kerry is very good at this kind of thing. Kerry, I know, claims no great economic expertise, but just to try and capture people's imagination, to try to explain that there are other drivers to what's going on, rather than just the one-off shocks, which is what people relate to. Secondly, very quickly, I think it's a pity that no one so far has said anything about food, uh, because it is what well, people talk about energy, but food prices as well are the main drivers of inflation at the moment, or the main elements of rising inflation. So when we talk about whatever the figure is, say 10% inflation, that rate is actually going to be higher for poor people than for rich people, because poor people, unfortunately, can't afford to go to the theatre very much or to go to, on foreign holidays. So poor people are going to be harder hit by this cost of living crisis, uh, which is a real problem. And also, I mean, we focused on Britain in this discussion, which is completely legitimate to do, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that also poor countries will be hit harder, partly because they're more heavily dependent on food. So that creates the basis for instability in these poorer countries as well. It doesn't mean there'll automatically be revolutions or political radicalism or anything, but the people at the bottom of society are going to be harder hit, much harder hit than the average person, both in Britain and also that applies to countries internationally. Brilliant. Thank you very much for raising all those things. I'll take Linda next and then uh, it'll be uh, James Woodhausen. Uh, yeah, um, it's just two things. The first thing is, if I was a real cynic, I would say, um, what cost a living crisis? Um, because um, you've got millions of jobs lying empty and you've got 1.3 million more people claiming benefits or not claiming benefits, but not in the labour market than there were before uh, the pandemic. That's... Uh, able-bodied people who could be working um, of, of beneath retirement age who have chosen one way or another uh, not to participate in the labour market, which is dying and crying out for uh, workers. So uh, it seems to me a bit, you know, there's a bit of a, an irony or a bit of a conundrum there that we have to be able to explain in terms of this question of evasion, this question of lack of aspiration, um, some people are talking about how workers are, are going to strike for higher wages. Uh, that may well be true, but on the other hand, we'll get people threatened to strike because they don't want to work anymore, like the doctors today, who basically are too burned out to work on a Saturday. So is it just the case, as Phil was pointing out, that what we need to do is provide better paid jobs so that people will want to work? Um, or is there something else that we need to be doing um, to, to address that question? 
The other point I want to make is something Hillary raised earlier around how capital works. And I think capital doesn't work the way we used to understand it in that, uh, you know, it doesn't want to necessarily accumulate the way it used to because it's handed out billions in furlough, billions in uh, handouts. Only today we had uh, the Welsh Prime Minister um, talking about how he's going to hand out millions and millions of pounds to young people in a UBI experiment. Um, So it seems to me that the capitalist class would much rather evade the problem of making painful decisions by um, completely changing um, how capital actually works here. Um, I know some people have framed it in terms of pushing social responsibility away, but I think what's important to do is try and explain this evasion, this aspiration in terms of them not wanting to, in terms of how that works in terms of capital accumulation. Great, that's a really important uh, question. Um, James Hortansen. Can you hear me? Yeah. I uh, think one of the things that Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, has uh, stressed is that uh, unemployment is uh, surprisingly low. And, of course, we know that there's, uh, to take up previous points, um, five million, I believe, you know, not available to work, five million altogether. Uh, So that may explain some of it. But it is uh, an interesting feature of the economy, which I think um, perhaps Hillary and Phil would comment upon, that uh, unemployment remains low. And For how long do they think it will be low? Uh, is another question uh, related to that. I fully agree with uh, Phil that to scapegoat people like Bailey or Christine Lagarde or whoever it is, um, Powell and the Fed, as, you know, uh, responsible for our inflationary woes is part of that pattern of evasion that governments do and, uh, you know, gets them off off the hook. Um I think that it is, uh, as part of Phil's programme for economic revival, I think we must raise the demand uh, to um, abolish the ability of, nevertheless, although it's wrong to scapegoat them, central bankers or our our central banker should not be, as he is unelected, in charge of the blunt instrument to which Hillary refers. It is only a blunt instrument, but it does set mortgage rates, I believe, uh, and you know, not just interest rates. And if you look at its remit now, I've uh, just been working on this, you know, it, it's in, in, uh, important for take seriously climate resilience, financial literacy among school children, uh, and all kinds of uh, woke diversions, chiefly to do with diversity and inclusion for all the firms that it regulates. Therefore, uh, you know, although its influence isn't the vulgar, enormous sort that is wielded by the Monetary Policy Committee or, uh, you know, thought to be the, the main event, as colleagues have said, uh, I think uh, reform of uh, the central banks and to get the responsibility back in the hands of government 
uh, not unelected technocrats who actually take lots of political views um, is something that we should also call for as part of Phil's restoration. Okay, there's not a lot of hands up at the moment, but that's fine. But uh, so I want to come back to the panel for anything else. I mean, I wanted specifically to ask Robert about because he you you said in uh, in relation to commodities, for example, that there wasn't much of an appetite for risky investment. But one of the things that's that's constantly in the things that I read around commodities, oh, we've got loads of the stuff. So we just, you know, we can just dig it out of the ground, but that's obviously not happening. So what, what is it that could make um, pe people invest or companies invest in drilling for oil or mining or whatever it is, or making these in investments that that's going to really transform things? Because I mean, I mean, and are those the same kind of barriers? That we're seeing it to a domestic level so that's for you but then hillary and phil anything that you want to say and then i'll come out for a final round of um comments from the audience so robert okay thanks rob um i just wanted to come back on a couple of things uh, dan daniel's comment about food prices is extremely apposite because although it is affecting us in terms of um price rises at the supermarkets, there are countries that are in absolute dire straits at the moment. There's a serious risk of famine in the Sahel, in Egypt. Egypt is almost entirely reliant on, um, on uh, Ukrainian wheat. Um, and these, these will have knock-on effects for years to come. Um, uh, you know, we're also likely to see um, energy shutdowns um, over the winter that will affect uh, the old and infirm and young. So, you know, yes, these do have real consequences. Um, going to Rob's point, uh, I think surety of a return on investment is what would um, make uh, uh, mining companies more uh, um, interested in investing in many economies. Um, we have seen some serious um, collapses um, in almost into failed state uh, areas like uh, New Caledonia, Tanzania, uh, where the demands that are made by the government or by the central banks are so onerous that mining in many countries would just not be profitable. The new mining charter in Peru, the new mining uh, uh, charter in Chile, um, in, uh, in many other countries is so onerous that uh, countries are pulling out. So we've just seen Glencore pull out of Zambia, we've seen Vedanta pull out of Zambia, um, and uh, joyfully the government has nationalize some of the mines involved there, which I think are, is a very dangerous situation to be in because they don't have the wherewithal or the capital to, to mine those areas. So surety of investment, um, surety of uh, taxation levels, sure, surety in terms of royalties that they have to pay. Um, and, uh, you know, there are numerous other factors, but um, stability is key to any new investment. Uh, 
given its longevity, given that it takes a long time for these projects to get on stream, uh, nobody's going to invest in most of these economies at the moment. Thank you very much, uh, Robert. Um, Hilary, any things that you want to come back on? Yeah, I, I just wanted to perhaps not give an answer, but, but explore a bit more Linda's challenge that um, actually capitalism's changed. It, it doesn't work in the same way that, that it does, because I think that's a, a, a good challenge, both in the terms that, that she phrased it, but also in terms of kind of following on from the question Robert's has been uh, grappling with, you know, what are the responsibilities of company management today? Because, you know, at one point, the, the responsibility of a, a company's board to its shareholders would have been to um, increase profit. You know, and now that, that, that's probably still on your list, uh, just about. Yeah. You've got all these other things on your list, like, you know, ESG and DNI and um, uh, your uh, commitment to uh, the environment and all those kind of things. Um, and, and it does seem that those are all things that are um, unhelpful to, to trying to push a growth agenda. Um, I think Daniel's just put something in the chat about being a bit careful about not saying that, that um, companies are anti-growth because they're not anti-growth, but they, they are, they, they, they raise, they, 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 they are required. It's not necessarily coming from them. They are required by external forces to also think about lots of other things that actually are, are not to do with you know, capital as we might have um, traditionally phrased it uh, and, and the profit motive as, as we might traditionally have phrased it. So, so I think, you know, we, we do need to, to, to think about how, how do we, uh, which of those things are useful and which of those things are not useful and, and how do we uh, situate the kind of um, question that Daniel was posing, you know, how do we reframe all this discussion? How do we reframe it allowing also for those kind of challenges. Just on Linda's other point, which was around, you know, and James mentioned it as well, we've got, you know, these millions of people who are not working anymore uh, and for whom uh, it, it's, you know, you're kind of scratching your heads saying, well, you know, why is the cost of living crisis not, not affecting these people yet? So, and I do think partly there's a, a bit of a catch up and some of those people will have a little bit of a a, a, a reserve and once that gets um, eaten up it will be problematic we do need to remember that even if inflation goes away current high prices won't go away so you know if inflation falls to zero tomorrow it still means that your energy prices are a lot higher than they were a year ago because it's just that they haven't gone up anymore um and and you know so we, we do need to you know be a be cognizant of the fact that you know people will start feeling the pinch a bit more soon um and, and, and i think some of these things will take a little bit of time to play out so i don't think we should necessarily make all our judgments based on what's happening today you know i think we, we do need to give things a little bit of time to to uh to to work through okay great phil um i stick to my um uh, critique of, of of presentism but just to clarify this doesn't mean that everything's always the same i mean which uh, what we have some very different things going on at the moment which we have to be able to uh, to incorporate um i think on the big picture side i think what i was trying to stress was that 
these recent shocks that that have hit not just the British economy, but the whole world economy or the European economies, the American economy, and so on, that these um, uh, uh, shocks are important, not only in and of themselves, because clearly, you know, as people have explained, you know, what's happened in, uh, in uh, you know, the price of semiconductors or something and the price of cars is obviously linked to the lockdowns that there were, or what's happening to food prices is clearly linked to what's going on in terms of the, the, the war in Ukraine. These are real consequences. But I think the bigger picture is the way in which um, these shocks have revealed just how fragile the British economy is, but but more broadly, the, the, the whole Western economies are. That And what that fragility is about is not just, you know, a cumulative effect. I mean, I described the way in which, you know, real wage growth has been, uh, you know, edging down since, since the 70s. So, you know, real wages were growing by something like 3% in the 70s, uh, uh, pretty much the same in the 80s, then down to 1.5% in the 1990s. Then uh, by the time we get to uh, the financial crash, as I say, since then in Britain, it's been zero. So you can, you know, have a linear cumulative process. But I think more importantly, and superimposed on top of that, is that the various coping mechanisms which capitalism has deployed since the 70s are much weaker. They're sort of eroding. They uh, have been exposed to be more exhausted. Um, monetary policy is a, is a, is a, is a classic example um, that, uh, you know, there was this belief that if you manipulate money um, through uh, monetary policy practices, namely, most importantly, interest rates, but as uh, as Hillary explained, quantitative easing, creating money and so on, then that uh, could somehow um, uh, resolve the problems and stabilize things. And it did stabilize things for a period. Um, and, and that's that's important. It, it, there, was a, there was a common um, view between uh, business the central bankers, the politicians, that if we can, you know, stabilize things and just cover over the problems in a sense, that was great for everybody. Businesses could go on doing what they're doing, you know, and having share buyback, share buybacks and not investing much, but you know, having enough money to have a decent life if you're a, if you're in the C-suite. Uh, politicians could uh, get on with doing nothing else but just sort of uh, uh, whatever else they wanted to be involved in, mainly the culture wars. Um, uh, 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 the central bankers thought, oh, well, we've got a role for ourselves, fine. But that uh, uh, that that sort of form of, um, uh, of coping, which people would call financialization, to give it a, a broad term, um, is now less able to stabilize things. That's what's been exposed. I mean, in the sense it was exposed by the 2008 crash, which was one limit, but they managed to patch things up again. And as, as, uh, uh, as uh, Hillary described, pumped a lot more money over the last 12 years into the economy, which kept things going for a bit. And without the shocks of the lockdowns and without the shocks of the Ukraine war, maybe things would have been um, uh, trudging along uh, still in this sort of uh, uh, precarious uh, uh, precarious sclerosis where there's no productivity, uh, there's no real wage growth, but the economy still still keeps going. The importance of the shock is that it's exposed, those the, the shocks, it's exposed that those coping mechanisms are no longer as effective as they were. That's why there's such a focus on, on the, uh, the central banks at the moment, not just because the governments want to pass responsibility off, but because here's another, 
you know, uh, uh, independent, expert, technocratic organization, which has supposedly been doing all these great things for 20 years, keeping inflation low, keeping everything stable, managing to keep house prices, you know, going up, et cetera, et cetera. You know, obviously keeping the rich uh, 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 people with shares been doing OK through this. Financial assets have been going up. The whole crypto market took off. All these things have been, uh, uh, have been happening. But now the whole thing seems to be, you know, on, a, on, on an edge. Because there's this dilemma that the central bankers for months didn't know what they were, what they could do. You know, it's not that they were complacent last year. It's that they have a sense from themselves that if they've created an economy which is reliant on negative interest rates and the negative interest rates continue today, let's not forget, negative real interest rates. When you've got inflation at 9% and interest rates are 1%, that's a negative 8% real interest rate. When you've got an economy which relies on that just to keep ticking over, then they realize they've got a big, big problem here. So they try and act big and say, well, we'll put interest rates up like, wow, an enormous three quarters of a percent from the Fed. What an aggressive move. You know, it's just play acting in some ways, but they they are sensitive that their uh, credibility could be, uh, could, could be could be pulled apart in this. And this would be another great expert technocratic institution, uh, you know, uh, go, uh, falling into, into, into despair. So the point I'm, I, I want to end with here is I'm saying there are different things happening, but they're primarily to do with the exhaustion of the coping mechanisms. Because you could also talk about internationalization, talk about intensification of work, all these things which we've been tried over the last, and used effectively over the last 30, 40 years are reaching limits. Now, I'm not saying we're at the limit, because you know it's it's never a wise thing to uh, uh, speculate that capitalism has reached its limits of coping. But certainly there are many indicators from the debt mountains, from the, say the problems of the monetary policies, from what's happening in terms of people, you know, ordinary people saying, "I'm not prepared to put up with this anymore." I may have tolerated zero real wage increases for the last 15 years, but now I'm getting you know four or five percent wage cuts in real terms in the ways that we we can all uh, sense then you're coming up against those limits. And that's why it's a great opportunity because it's exposing the, uh, the, the problems of capitalism. It's a great opportunity to open up the political discussion, I'm saying. Right, great. Okay, so I know that James Hartfield wants to speak, but if anybody else, even if you've spoken before, if you want to come back in and make a, a follow-up point or anything, then please do. So James. Oh, sorry, I need, to, I need to ask you to unmute. Sorry. Uh. Hey, yeah, so I mean, you know, what if let's try it the other way around? What if um, we don't need uh, less presentism, but a bit more? I mean, um, instead of thinking, you know, you can't see the wood for the trees, what about if you can't see the trees for the wood? I mean, to say that um, it's not so much like uh, exogenous shocks. You know, we talk about all these things as though they're exogenous shocks and somehow uh, external to what's going on. What if they are actually manifestation of, of the problem? So, I mean, look, COVID-19 obviously was a real thing, um, a virus and all the rest of it. But in terms of the way the, um, uh, the society coped with it, that was predisposed by a certain um, intellectual approach, um, moral approach and all the rest of it, which was... I would suggest in the main destructive and so which is a you know worldwide event uh, which reached down deep into every aspect of every economy in the world 
Uh, and I don't think it's unreasonable to think that the things that happened in uh, 2020 and 2021 have had some consequence for what's happening in 2022. Um, uh, and uh, so my thinking would be that, uh, so, but, you know, for example, if you say like coping mechanisms, I mean, the coping mechanisms wouldn't be working if the problem that they were coping with was not the same problem that they were coping with in the 1980s. And I'd like to suggest that the, um, uh, you know, at its root, what you've got is, is uh, it's not really to do with the accumulation of capital or the barriers there too, or uh, profit margins or anything like that. It's much more a, a kind of a, 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 an embedded culture of hostility to production, really a kind of subjective problem, except that it's, it's manifested, you know, that it's become institutionalized uh, uh, as a kind of uh, um, excessive problematization of um, uh, development and production. Uh, and this is a wholly new kind of a, a situation. So it would hardly be surprising if the coping mechanisms uh, of the problems of the 1980s, which were rather different, didn't really work in uh, uh, 2020, would it? Um, and I, so my vision of it is, uh, you know, rather than seeing, say, like the housing crisis or the energy crisis or the food um, uh, problems that are going on, rather than seeing, you know, the, the, all these things as unconnected, you know, you know, for what's happening in Sri Lanka, what's happening uh, in uh, Sahara, what's happening in Europe. Look, these things uh, in North America, they're not unconnected. They're all manifestations fundamentally of a, a, a broadly similar problem, which is that, you um, societies uh, doesn't have the moral resources to um, uh, uh, to sustain itself and um, uh, you know rather than um, you know sort of like pushing that problem aside and saying you know that you know these are uh, uh, not you know these are external to the issue they are the issue they are you know they are the trees which is the wood I mean to say so um, you know the uh, uh, I, I would say that you know, if you wanted to manifest a, a manifesto for change, that also means a kind of firefighting issue on in each and every one of these issues, and, and to draw out the sense in which they are um, the you know the, the crucial you know the problem that's posed, that, you know, the question that's posed in each one is uh, uh, do, you know do we make the investments we need to make our ourselves secure and and uh, wealthy in the future and uh, uh, now. Uh, or do we uh, mess the whole thing up yet more and um, run away from these problems? So I think, you know, it, it, it's, it, these are the issue. These, all these different manifestations of the problem, they are the problem. Great. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, Marilyn, and then I'll, I'll just go back to the panel for their final thoughts. So, Marilyn. I, I still can't, um, it's probably really simplistic, but I still don't understand how the... Um, the oil industry and are still allowed, and well, any or, or the energy companies are still allowed to make so much money, and and so they're still reaping. In fact, they're getting richer um, because wasn't it the B, head of BP said it's like a cash machine, and and it's not being passed down to us. I mean, surely that that is not right. So, I mean, how I see it is that any tax on earnings or profit should be calculated on the ability to pay. As it is with PAYE, so all this talk of a windfall tax is like if someone happens to earn a bumper salary in any one given year, then they pay a higher rate of tax, and then if the next year the earnings drop for whatever reason, they'll pay a lower rate of tax. 
So I, ju I just can't get my head around the fact that companies like that are allowed to continue to get increased profit when it's not passed down and that it should be being passed down to us, even if, as I said, even if it's only short term. I just don't get it. I just don't. Okay, great. So, uh, panel, uh, your final takeaway thoughts, etc. So, Robert, uh, do you want to go first? Yeah, um, I really the, the thrust of what I'm arguing is that um, that this is a global phenomenon, and that every country is facing the same issues. Um, that, um, particularly when we're talking about the advanced economies um, suffering from the same malaise that Phil is talking about, um, but exacerbated by uh, events that often cannot be seen as in, entirely in their control. Um, commodity prices have been extremely volatile for a long time, um, and um, they've not been managed efficiently by um, either industry or uh, governments. Um, and um, they haven't, um, by and large, saved for a rainy day. So they, you know, coming, coming back to Marilyn's point, they are, um, you know, going from one year to the next, either making a profit or making a loss. Um, I, I'm not entirely sure that taxation is, is the issue here. I mean, I think it's one issue, but I think um, the key to this is that um, a stable um, in investment environment um, where risks are managed efficiently, um, where resources that are made in good times are set aside for bad times or difficult times is key to creating some kind of stability in the commodity markets. Um, and it, it could be any commodity. Okay, great. Thank you, Hilary. Yeah, I, I'm just to pick up a, a, a final question that I was just thrown into the chat. Um, I don't think there is um, a problem with um, companies and government not seeing productivity gains as a good thing. I think they do. Um, but, but there are huge swathes of industry where improving productivity is really problematic. And they are the companies that Phil has referred to as the, the, the zombie companies that, that really need to go. And the problem that we have is that governments, by and large, um, are, are not willing to kind of tackle that problem and to, um, to deal with the consequences of, of tackling that problem. Um, and, and uh, you know, that, that's a, a bigger issue. It's, I mean, it's not just a UK issue, it's, it's a bigger issue, but it is an issue we have, I think, to a degree in the UK that is, 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 is much higher than in some other um, uh, 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 countries. Um, just, just going back to some of the, the other points, I, I, I guess the, the, the thing that I'm trying to hold on to, because I think this has been probably quite a, a depressing discussion, um, and, and perhaps the thing I'm trying to hold on to is, is something, a kind of a thing that perhaps might make us more optimistic, is the fact that, it, to me, this does make things a bit more black and white. So, you know, some of the points that, that Marilyn was making about, you know, some of this just feels 
quite unfair. Um, I, I don't disagree with um, the, the issue. I think we have is that how do you how do you challenge and, and channel that that feeling of unfairness into something that really can um, be a, a way that we try to change politics uh, and and the future. And I do think the fact that workers will be more and more uh, struggling with the um, issues of the cost of living uh, crisis does mean that they will inevitably become more open to discussions about what the long-term solutions to their problems are. Um, Again, I don't want to be romantic about this because I think, you know, there's lots of um, conclusions they will cling on to that are not particularly positive or helpful or constructive uh, and that that's why we, we we do need some of these bigger debates that Phil has been hinting at um, to to kind of really take root in society so that people can can grapple with and engage with those discussions rather than going off on some of the tangents that we do see people uh, going off at uh, in the as we are today. Thank you. Thank you, Hilary. Finally, Phil. Uh, thanks. Um, and thank you all for the, for some very, very interesting questions. I, I, I'm just going to focus on James Hartfield's points because um, I think they... Um, uh, well, I, I should say I got... I, I did... It's probably me. I did get a bit confused as to what was the manifestation and what was the real problem and what was the wood and what was the trees, but that's just me being a bit, bit slow. But overall, James, I think... Uh, we can agree, um, and I think we are agreeing, that the problems, while they manifest themselves as economic problems, are not um, uh, soluble within those narrow confines. What we're really talking about is a big cultural problem. I agree entirely with what you were saying on that. Um, the, the issue is high, or one of the issues, which uh, uh, we all need to think about, is high. we take particular circumstances like uh, as Hillary was summing up that think when sometimes when the perceptions become a bit more you said black and white but they become a bit more clear as to what's going on when that happens it's an opportunity to begin to question some of the uh, old ways of thinking uh, uh, Daniel talked about reframing things or developing a framework I think we have to understand and I agree with him entirely on that but we're starting from a framework which already exists a framework of uh, different ways of characterizing it, but I think James Hartfield would agree. Uh, it's one where there's a, there's a very strong uh, fatalist frame of mind. And that's, I think, particularly um, evident within the within economic discussions. And that's why I've been, uh, you know, bending the stick on this on this point of presentism, because there is a cultural mindset which isn't just within the elite, but, you know, is held by, by, by many people, which is reflected in the economic discourse that, uh, you know, these economic problems are really natural problems. I mean, that's another side of what you were saying, James, in terms of the antipathy to production, the antipathy to, to even discussing things in the economy, because they're natural and seen as outside us. And so we've had a whole series of fetishized concepts over the years, from globalization to technological change to um, uh, demographic shifts and so on, where this which are put forward as the determining uh, factors behind uh, in a world economic developments, and it's they resonate because there is that fatalist 
uh, mindset that, you know, there's not much we can do about things. I think governments have got that to extreme. Uh, you know, businesses have got that as well because they prefer a quiet life rather than to, to or most of them, rather than to do a lot of innovation and, and uh, you know, creative destruction of their own. And a lot of people are infected by that same uh, same fatalism. So there's a, there's a susceptibility to those sort of arguments which attribute blame for um, uh, uh, things which are actually within our control, our collective control, to outside events, to globalization, whatever. And I'm saying that in the current context, there's a, there's a, there's, well, those discussions carry on. There's a number of other external events which are being used by the elite to avoid and evade having that uh, uh, discussion, which uh, Jenny talked about right at the beginning in the in the discussion period about the productivity problem, you know, you know, when productivity has been flatlining for 15 years, when we have real wages, uh, you know, not going anywhere, which is, as many people will have read, the first time this has happened since the beginning or since the early years of the Industrial Revolution, since the Napoleonic age, when you think there's society is not able to produce wealth you'd think that would cause a bit of a discussion but but it isn't and one of the ways that it isn't is because of the cultural hold of fatalism that allows those sense of malaise which people feel to be attributed to external events and today those events could be brexit you know brexit to blame which you know we can all laugh about and stuff but um uh, you know there there is a concerted effort to try to say our problems are uh, to do with that vote took place six years ago um uh, and even though there, many of the people of the Brexit bashers are doing this to bash uh, Boris Johnson at the moment and taking advantage of his, you know, local difficulties, uh, the uh, paradoxical impact of blaming Brexit for economic problems is that it lets this government, the Johnson government, off the hook for the fact that they've helped create and foster these problems. Similarly, these great world historic uh, events which were world historic of the uh, of the lockdowns imposed uh, because of uh, uh, the pandemic which you know was unjustified in in the way it was extended and the the liberalism of it or the historic event of the uh, resistance of the ukrainian people to fight for national sovereignty against against russia those are very very important events but they're being manipulated and used by sections of the elite to avoid having a discussion about the economy, to, to blame these external events and say, well, they're out of our control. Nothing that, is, but as I said, as Boris said yesterday, you know, inflation will happen. Nothing we can do about it. Living standards will go down, but we've got to because of, uh, because of uh, supporting Ukraine. I 100% agree with him. It's the best thing he's done in terms of supporting the Ukrainian people in, in, in the last few months. Um, but I disagree with him of, have, of, of reinforcing this fatalist view that there's nothing we can do about our economic problems. There's nothing we can do about inflation. There's nothing we can do about cost of living crisis. It's just one of those things that happens because we've taken a stance on, on Ukraine or we took a particular stance on, on pandemic or we took that vote to, uh, uh, to leave the European Union and so on. No, we've got to... A challenge that part of the reframing things, Rob, to finish, part of the reframing things is to uh, uh, challenge each of those arguments, which uh, tries to shift responsibility away from what we can do, what we can do collectively and what we can do through our elected representatives. And that's why I was stressing this thing just to finish of, you know, local discussion, not because we can have solutions on a local level, but I have faith not in the uh, our political representatives. I think we have to hold them to account. Uh, 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 and James Woodhouse is entirely right in saying one of the elements of my program would be to bring uh, the central banks back under political direction. Um, uh, but in terms of being able to 
flesh out this uh, program of productivity change, it has to come from people on the ground who know what they're talking about. You know, whether they're trade unionists or just other people in, in, in a community which understands what the strengths and their strengths and weaknesses, understands what factories have closed down or what factories are on the edge or what workplaces are rubbish and so on. And they can be part of creating uh, a, a transformation program, which will as uh, uh, have to be, as Ian said, a national one, but it's not going to come top down from Westminster, just as none of their industrial strategies, which they've now abandoned, of course, uh, you know, ever are minded to anything. It's got to come from from the people we can really trust, which is ourselves. Right. OK, thank you very much. Thank you, everybody, uh, for taking part in this um, and the, all the useful, interesting comments, but can I particularly have a little round of applause for our speakers who have all been very, very interesting indeed. To hear more of our podcasts and to subscribe to them, visit academyofideas.org.uk forward slash podcast.